Ephesians 6, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 14 today, but we're going to start in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, this is what we looked at last week, having girded your waist with truth, What we're looking at today is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the word of God for us today, church. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and active. Thank you that you are able to speak to us through the truth of your word in a way that transforms our minds and redirects our hearts. We have shown up with many different emotions today, different stuff happening in our lives. We, we bring it all to you and to your word today. I submit my mouth, my thoughts, my heart to you. God, I've done my best to prepare. I ask that you would now speak to your people like only you can. We want to open our ears now to hear from you. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen. All right, so today we are looking at the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, we've got this awesome illustration back here. Shout out to Neil Perro, who's right there, who painted this years ago. Uh, And shout out to me, who stole it from Reality Carp. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we're looking at the breastplate, but first I want to mention a few things, a few reminders that apply to all of the armor. We looked at these last week, but it's important for us to just remember these as we, before we talk specifically about the breastplate. Number one, we need to remember that the armor is God's armor. We are in a spiritual battle, right? It's not against people. It's against demonic forces of wickedness. But it can't be won without God's armor. Even as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this world, but they're mighty in God. This is God's armor. Next, we need to remember that the armor points us to and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Everything about the armor, every single piece of the armor, as we'll see even with the breastplate of righteousness, it points us to the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And as we are clothed with Christ, we are clothed with this armor. Next, we need to know that the armor is metaphorical, not magical, which means that it is imagery. It means that we don't just pray, Lord, give me the breastplate of righteousness, and then a magical breastplate appears, and the enemy's like, oh, no, he's got the breastplate on. Every piece of armor is a metaphor for a spiritual reality that is necessary for the spiritual battle. The breastplate, for instance, represents righteousness, which leads us to the last reminder that the armor must be appropriated, 
right? It's, it's metaphor of spiritual realities. Those spiritual realities must be appropriated in order to be effective. Again, it does us no good to just talk about it. It certainly does us no good to pray it on, whatever that means. In order for it to do its job, we must apply the spiritual realities that the armor represents to our lives. We'll talk about how to do that specifically with the breastplate of righteousness today. Now, the breastplate would have been that area from the top of the neck uh, covering the shoulders all the way down to the waist where it would have, uh, would have attached to the belt. Apart from the helmet, this is probably the most critical part of a uh, soldier's armor, which we should remember as we think of it as a metaphor for righteousness. Let's talk for a minute here about how this would have functioned practically practically for the soldier because that'll help us understand how righteousness then functions for the life of the believer. First of all, as you can imagine, it protected all of the vital organs, right? It protected all of the vital organs. That's where our heart is. That's where our lungs are. It also protected the largest and most vulnerable part of the soldier, your chest cavity, it's like, think of it like a bulletproof vest. It's very similar to a bulletproof vest. There's a reason that the bulletproof vest covers this and not that, right? Uh, if you get shot to the chest, good chance that you're going to die. It's also noteworthy that the breastplate attached to the belt, and it was critical that the two stayed connected. And lastly, the breastplate would have had an insignia. This one right here doesn't have necessarily an insignia, although the shield does, but it would have had generally an insignia distinguishing uh, the soldier from a civilian, also reminding him, listen, reminding him who he was, who he belonged to, what army he belonged to, and what power and authority he came by. And isn't it strange, as we think about this part of our physical bodies, how much happens in this part of our bodies? If you read up on like science journals or nutrition stuff or anything like that, you know that they started calling the gut the second brain right? It is so important. What happens in the gut is so important. Also, so many emotions live in this area, right? Often anxiety for many of us shows up in our chest, right? Depression obviously feels like the sensation we physically feel is like a heaviness in our shoulders. I know for me, nervousness and fear shows up in my gut, even intuition, right? What do we say? Well, I don't know. I just have a gut feeling about it. There is something profound and deep and emotional and spiritual related to this part of our body. In many ways, it's like it's where the deep stuff lives. It's the deep part of the core of who we are. When the ancient Hebrews would talk about the heart, they were talking about the seed of emotions, and it felt like, ah, oh, it lives like in here somewhere, right? And so God has made provision to protect the deepest part of who we are because the enemy is after it. God has given us a breastplate and a breastplate of righteousness. So I'd like to answer three questions today. First of all, what is righteousness? If he's given us a breastplate of righteousness, what is righteousness? Simply put, to be righteous is to be right, pure, and in right standing. God, for instance, is Righteous. Everything he does is right. Even as Psalm 145 says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. Everything he does is right. 
which should not be a concept that is like hard for us to grasp, right? After all, he's God. The concept that's hard for us to grasp is that we are now somehow righteous because we feel deeply the reality that apart from Jesus, Romans 3.10 is true, that there is none righteous, not even one. And that even, that's right, Noah, and that even all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. God's standard of righteousness is absolute perfection, which means that nobody, listen, nobody can be declared righteous before God or right before God based on their own merit or their own morality. And so it can be difficult for us to grasp the idea that we would be righteous and have a perfectly right standing before God. And yet, that is exactly what Scripture declares about us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, here it is, we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christian, this is what happens when we are born again. Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And so we now have a perfectly right standing before God. And this right standing is only, though, accomplished through the work of Jesus and through our faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Even as Romans 4 says, to the one who does not work, who does not try to like do good things in order to attain righteousness, the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul, writing about his own righteousness, said, it's not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or trying to obey the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, your old person was buried. That person that was defined by sin was buried, and you were risen into newness of life, and what's his became yours. As Galatians 3 says, for all of you who were baptized, buried, immersed in Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. You have been clothed with Jesus and his righteousness, as the prophet Isaiah wrote. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. But listen, here's what's so cool. Unlike a physical garment or unlike a breastplate that could be removed, the righteousness of Christ cannot be removed. It becomes a part of who we are. It becomes a part of our spiritual identity. And then God treats us like we are that. Not like we just have that on us, but like we are that. Okay, so we need to establish this, okay? Because this is hard for some of us to receive. Can you repeat after me? Plus, it'll, if you say something loud, it's going to help you feel a little warmer. Repeat after me. Say, Jesus is righteous. I am in Jesus. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, you guys, your volume's starting to dissipate. Okay, I'm going to start over, and I want you to say the first part, because listen, this is an illustration of what happens in our hearts. We say, Jesus is righteous, and then as we start talking about ourselves, we start saying it with less and less conviction. Okay, that's what just happened right now. I heard it. I don't know if you heard it. I heard it. Ready? Repeat after me. Say, Jesus is righteous. I am in Jesus. Therefore, 
Because I'm in Jesus, I am righteous before God. That's hard. Listen, that is hard for some of us to say. That last phrase, you're like, is that true? I don't know. It's even easier for some of us to say something like, I have the righteousness of Christ. Like as if it's a thing that's kind of added to us. But when we start starting a sentence with I am, it's talking about the core of who we are, right? It's talking about an identity thing. To believe something like that changes the way that we think about ourselves. To say something like that and believe something like that means that we start thinking about us like God starts thinking about us. But when we do that, as we'll see a little bit later, righteousness, that's when righteousness does its best work of acting like a breastplate that protects us from the catastrophic destructive schemes of the enemy. Talk more about that in a minute. But first, number two, what are then the schemes of the enemy? What schemes of the enemy does the breastplate of righteousness guard us from? As I shared last week, every piece of armor protects us from a different scheme or schemes of the enemy. That's right, Noah. Anyone remember uh, what scheme of the enemy the belt of truth protects us from? Lies. But what does a breastplate of righteousness guard us from? Let me ask it like this. If I have appropriated the righteousness of Christ to my life and I begin to believe that I am indeed righteous and right standing before God, what schemes of the enemy will that guard me against? Two things, sin and shame. Sin and shame. Our right standing in God guards us from giving into sin and a life of sin and coming under shame. Let me explain this for a second here. For the believer, us being righteous before God means that we are both pure and justified. Sin and shame attacks both of those because what opposes a pure life better than a sinful life? And what opposes justification other than condemnation and shame? Remember the breastplate, it covers the all the vital organs. Well, without the breastplate of righteousness, the enemy will infect the vitality of our spiritual lives with the viruses of sin and shame. And this should make sense to us, right, as we think about the vitality of Christians' lives because as I think about the body of Christ, what has sucked the life out of more Christians than habitual sin and or shame? I can't think of anything that's done it more often and more intensely than habitual sin and a life of shame. Let's talk about the enemy's scheme of sin first and luring us into sin. Uh, Last week, we saw that Satan was a liar, right? It's who he is. Today, we need to understand that the Bible also calls Satan the tempter in 1 Thessalonians 3. Now, obviously, we have our own fleshly desires that tempt us to sin. And if you're not a born-again, spirit-filled believer, you need to know that you're actually a slave to sin. But the enemy also lures us into sin. And we'll actually use our own fleshly desires to do so. When teaching his Bible college students, Charles Spurgeon wrote, The devil is a greater scholar than you and a nimbler disputant 
He can transform himself into an angel of light to deceive. He will get within you and trip up your heels before you are aware. He will play the juggler with you undiscerned and cheat you of your faith or your innocency. And you shall not know that you have lost it. Nay, he will make you believe it is multiplied or increased when it is lost. You shall see neither hook nor line, much less the subtle angler himself while he is offering you his bait. And his baits shall so be fitted to your temper and disposition that he will be sure to find advantages within you and make your own principles and inclinations to betray you. And whenever he ruins you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. This is the work of the enemy. One of the ways he does his dirty work is by attempting to lead us into sin. Why sin? Because Satan is, a, he, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Well, sin always robs from us, ultimately leads us to death, and ultimately leads us to destruction in our lives always. We need to know that today, that habitual, unrepentant sin will always bring destruction in our lives and to the lives of those around us. So if Satan can get us to fall into sin, he will. Without the righteousness of Christ covering us, we become more exposed to that attack of the enemy. Revelation 2.10 also calls him not just a tempter, but calls him the accuser of the brethren. That accusing voice that you so often hear, that may be the voice of the enemy. And what's the point of that? Condemnation, ultimately shame. Not only does he try to lure us into sin, but he tries to drive us into shame with his condemning accusations. Now, shame can show up in a few different ways, right? Obviously, because of our own sin, can lead us to shame. We sin and the enemy then begins to whisper accusations, driving us into shame. But shame can also show up from sin against us. We see this a lot with sexual abuse or assault. Even something like getting divorced or mental illness can often produce shame in people. The point is the enemy doesn't care how it shows up. He will be sure to capitalize on it no matter where it came from, just like he does with lies as we spoke about last week. Before we go any further, I just want to briefly explain the difference between guilt and shame and condemnation because uh, sometimes we get them confused and it's really critical that we don't confuse them. Guilt is the feeling of conviction that you have done something wrong. This is a God-given, healthy thing designed to drive us. Listen, guilt is designed to drive us toward God and toward his love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Condemnation, on the other hand, is the accusing voice of the enemy that tells us that because we have done something wrong, we do not deserve the love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace of God, much less his blessing. Condemnation is not of God. If you put your trust in Jesus, then you need to know today that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And shame is the emotion associated with condemnation. Unlike in a healthy dose of guilt and conviction, shame doesn't drive us to God. It always drives us away from God, reinforcing the idea that you are undeserving of anything good from God. 
Shame always goes right to the identity of us, attacking the most vulnerable and vital parts of who we are. And shame does this in two ways. It does two things really, really well. Shame holds us down and drives us away. Satan, uh, his desire is both to debilitate us and isolate us, and or isolate us, right? Shame is extremely effective at doing both. John Piper uh, actually attributes shame connected to pornography specifically in, in men's lives as the reason why there are not uh, more men serving God. Maybe it's the, the reason why in 20 years of sending people to the nations, I don't know if I can think of one time that we've send a, sent a single unmarried man to the nations. Plenty of unmarried women, plenty of families with husbands, but maybe never can I remember a time when we sent just an unmarried man. On the other hand, I can't count the number of men who have been all but crippled because of their shame connected to pornography, even after some of them have stopped using it. This is the crafty work of the devil, and it goes right to the core of our being. Huge part of the remedy of that is appropriating the righteousness of Christ to our lives. And when we're not appropriating it, we just give more space for that crafty work to come in and for it to wreck our spiritual vitality. And then this whole evil scheme of shame sin, it works with the lies of the enemy in conjunction with them, right? It's as you can, even the things I'm saying right now, you think about shame and the voice of accusation, it's all lies, which is why, guys, it is so important that we put on the whole armor of God, which is what our passage says, including the belt of truth. The breastplate, remember, was connected to the belt. Likewise, uh, our righteousness is hinged on. It's connected to the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what he says about himself and what he says about us, which means that your right standing, your righteous standing has nothing to do with what people say or what you think about yourself or what those voices say to you or what you have done. That's self-righteousness, right? Self-righteousness says I can do enough to be deemed righteous. The gospel says I am deemed righteous because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. So the two biggest ways the enemy attacks our righteousness, getting us to fall into sin and covering us in shame appropriating the righteousness of Christ to our lives guards us against giving into sin and coming under shame. So then our third point, last point, how do we appropriate then the breastplate of righteousness to our lives? Because that's what we need, right? We need, then we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. A soldier's breastplate would have done, it, done him no good to just be sitting on the, at his house in the corner, and knowing that's my breastplate, unless he put it on. Likewise, it does us no good to simply know what God says about us if we don't believe it in our minds, receive it into our hearts, and then walk it out in our lives. And guys, often you know, some of you who have been trapped in, in shame and sin, you know you got to do this daily. It's like this dude's got to put it on every day because the devil doesn't sleep. 
Shame doesn't sleep. Temptation doesn't sleep. And so you can't be like, well, I only go to war one day a week. No, you are always in war. That means you've always got to strap on the armor. Let me remind us before we move any further what God has done. Listen, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he was sinful like us so that he could in turn treat us as if we were righteous like him. You can't do anything to earn it, right? That's self-righteousness. However, you can do something to utilize it, to put it on, which is what we need to do if we're going to experience the benefits of it. So let's talk about how to do this, how this can work with sin, since that's one of the schemes that the enemy comes at us with. So stick with me here, okay? Follow this progression. Identity leads to action. We generally live out who we believe ourselves to be. You have a core belief that I'm a driven person. Therefore, you work hard and you work until the job is done. You have a core belief of I'm a healthy person. Therefore, you make healthy life decisions. You eat healthy food. You make sure you exercise. I'm an on-time person. So you set up your life in a way so that you're not late. Or I'm a five minutes late kind of person. It's just who I am. Therefore, you set up your life in a way that you might get somewhere kind of late, right? It's who you are. You don't realize how often the belief about who we are actually leads to actions. We generally live out of who we are. When I was, or who we believe we are. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a family member who was uh, addicted to alcohol. Well, I had a lot of them, but... Um, <laughs> One of them decided to get some help and started working the, uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous program, and it was unbelievably helpful in his life. He started showing up to parties sober for the first time, and it was, it was amazing. But in the process, I remember something happening. He, he started smoking a lot. He'd never smoked before. The AA program, 12-step program, um, the first step is that you admit that you are powerless. You're powerless over alcohol. The beauty of this is that we finally come to grips with the fact that we have a problem and that we need help from God, right? But the potential downside is that it doesn't always fix the identity issue because we stay in the, the mindset of I'm an alcoholic. I am. There's that identity thing. I am an addict. This is who I am. The problem with continuing to believe that you're a powerless addict is that you will eventually start acting like a powerless addict again. This is why so many addicts break their addiction to one thing only to find another. Many people get off drugs and become addicted to sugar. Many people get off porn and become addicted to work. For my family member, it was cigarettes. They were still addicted. They had just found a a new something to be addicted to that was more socially acceptable and less destructive to their life. Now, I'm not dismissing the victory of someone breaking uh, their addiction to something as destructive as alcohol. Honestly, it, it's amazing. But what I've seen is that true freedom comes when we stop believing that we are still powerless slaves and start believing what God says about us. I am not an addict anymore. I am not a slave to anything. 
I am a free, victorious child of God, and I'm powerful because I have the power of Christ, or the power of the Spirit living in me, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Therefore, I will not act like an addict. I will not use anything to medicate or comfort or numb me or distract me. I am fulfilled in Jesus now. That's who I am. You've probably seen these uh, self-help gurus, right? Where they tell their client before a job interview to look in the mirror and say, I'm successful. I belong at this company. I'm successful. I belong at this company. I'm successful, right? And then they go to the job interview and often kill it. What happens there? Well, they're not like speaking something into existence. It's actually a biblical principle, It is an identity thing. They show up to an interview believing that they're good enough to work at that company. And then that translates to confidence and competency. Sometimes I feel like we need to stand in front of the mirror and say to ourselves, remind ourselves who we are. I am not a porn addict anymore. Therefore, I'm not going to live like I'm a porn addict. I am not a failure. I am not alone. I am not crippled in fear. I am not undeserving of love. I am a child of God. That's who I am. I am comforted by the Spirit. I am free. I am hidden in Christ. I am God's masterpiece. Therefore, I'm going to live like that. I am not a filthy sinner. Yeah, I mess up sometimes. But I am, I am Who God says I am and who he says I am is righteous and in right standing before him because of what Jesus did. I am powerful, not powerless. I'm powerful because of the spirit inside of me. So I'm gonna live like a powerful person would live today who doesn't have to give in to every temptation. When we believe and receive the truth about our righteous standing before God, we come into alignment with our true identity. And when we believe that our identity of that is that of being righteous before God, then we begin to live more like a righteous person than like a sinful person. You start to sin or think about sinning or you start to sin and you're like, I'm not going to do that, man. That's not who I am. This is not what someone who follows God does. And I'm someone who follows God. That's what I do. This is not what someone who wholeheartedly follows after Jesus. That's not who I, that's who I am. I follow Jesus. I'm not going to do this. This is how the righteousness of Christ can work like a breastplate, guarding us from falling into sin. We, we begin to live out who Christ says that we are. We choose by the power of the Spirit to live out who Christ says that we are. So friend, don't be afraid to proclaim what is already true about who you are in Christ. The righteousness of Christ, listen, should act like an insignia on you, reminding you who you belong to, reminding you who your your king is, reminding you what authority you have. It works similarly with shame. That's how it works with sin. It works similarly with shame. I need to repeat. This, shame and condemnation are not of God, church. God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And if anyone believes in him, Jesus, 
they will never be put to shame. You know who was put to shame? The devil. That's who was put to shame. Jesus on the cross put him to shame. That's what scripture says. He put his foot on his neck. We watched that movie uh, Into the Wild or The Call of the Wild or whatever yesterday. And remember that scene where that, the dog, the Huck or whatever his name is? Hey, what, I don't remember his name. But he gets in a fight with the, the wolf who's the leader of the pack. And after he like defeats him, what does he do? He puts his paw on his neck. And what happens? That other wolf who was a jerk, what does he do? Hangs his head, tail between the legs and just walks off, right? That's what happened to the devil. That's not how you posture yourself. You don't posture yourself. The devil postures himself like that. And he wants to bring you down just like he is shamed. Now, shame, as I said earlier, is really good at two things, holding us down and driving us away. We see that uh, with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that shame forced them into hiding, right? Because that's what shame does. It always forced us into hiding. But it generally happens in two ways, by pushing us down till we hide or by pushing us away into hiding. I think of so many friends that I've had and their countenance goes from this and then shame starts entering in and it becomes this. Like a little kid who goes in the corner of a house and hides themselves with their back toward everyone. They become smaller and smaller and that becomes their new identity that they live out of. Unworthy, undeserving. I don't, I could never be again that whole thing. Shame holds us down, causing us to hide. But it can also drive us away into hiding, where we become disconnected from community. We become disconnected from God, even as Adam and Eve were hiding themselves from God. We become isolated, which is exactly where the enemy wants us, because it's there in isolation that his lies and his accusations can incubate and create a new narrative for us that we begin to believe. And when we believe a shame-filled narrative that says, I'm worthless, I'm undeserving, how could God ever use me again? I'm filthy, who could ever love me again? We begin to live out of that place, and that shame leads us into more sin generally, and then that sin leads us into more shame, and it becomes this vicious vortex cycle. But this isn't what God has for us. You may have messed up really bad and hurt yourself and your life and many people, but that's not who you are. Something you did, but that is not who you are. You are loved by God. You are a child of God. You are righteous and right standing before God because of what Jesus has done. So friend, if you find yourself like this today, with your head hung low, please remember who God is. As Psalm 3 says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Shame forces us into hiding by holding us down and or driving us away. Appropriating the righteousness of Christ to our lives lifts us up and brings us back in. I'll end with this last thing. You remember the prodigal son story, right? He's out. He wastes his life, Luke 15. And uh, he started hiding in shame, right? He doesn't go back home. He's hiding because that's what shame causes us to do. And then he finally decides, I'm going to go back home. And while he's leaving his pigsty behind, 
he doesn't actually leave his shame behind. Because what does he say he's going to go home and do? Luke, Luke 15, uh, verse 18. He's going to say this. I'm going to say this to my father. I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's all right. A little bit of guilt, conviction. That's what's maybe leading him home. But here's, here's what shame's causing him to do. I am, here's the identity statement. I am no longer worthy. That's what shame says. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Because of what I've done, I don't deserve to be your son. This is the lie that shame tells us. Because of what I have done or what was done to me, I don't deserve fill in the blank. But what does the father do? Verse 20 of Luke 15. So he got up, the son got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion not condemnation, filled with compassion for him. And so he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against earth. I am no longer, to be, uh, no longer worthy to be called your son, full of shame. The father doesn't even respond to that. He turns to his servant and says, but the father said to the servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his father and sandals on his feet. This is his response to his son's shame. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine. Not servant. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Church, this is what our heavenly father does when we acknowledge that we've messed up or that we've been buried in shame and we come to him. He runs to us. He's not like, that's right. I'm gonna wait here. I've been waiting for 10 years. I'm waiting for 10 months. You better come. You better get on your knees too. That is not the voice of the father. That's the voice of, the, of Satan. That is not the voice of the father. He runs to us. As soon as we turn, you take one step toward him and he's like, woo! He starts running to you. And then he hugs you. He wraps you in his arms and he kisses us. He removes the cloak of shame and he robes us in his righteousness, giving us back our honor and dignity, which is what that robe would have represented. And he puts a ring on our finger, restoring to us our position as heirs, which is what that ring would have represented. And he straps sandals on our feet to remind us that we are not servants because servants wouldn't have had sandals. We are sons and daughters. And he throws a party. He throws a party boldly proclaiming that no matter how good or bad your deeds are. They can never grant you or strip you of a place in his house. Yeah, you can clap for that. Come on. Guys, he lifts our head and looks in our eyes again to remind us, you're my son. You're my daughter. You are. That is who you are. <laughs> That's right, Noah. You need to know today that your father says to you today, stand up tall, lift your head up, put your shoulders back. This is who you are. You are a kingdom kid. Amen? Amen. 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 Father, I, we know that this is true, but I want to ask now that you would help our hearts to fall into line with what is true. God, I know today that 
the person who is buried in shame or addicted to sin feels like there's no hope. I could never preach enough words with enough conviction to release someone from hopelessness, but you, by the power of your spirit and in a moment in your presence can do that. I've seen you do it, God. I've seen you do it. I ask today that you would give your people a powerful understanding, maybe even show them visions or dreams to show them who they are in you and what you have done and the power of what you've done. If you're here today and you are living a life of sin, um, the Father says, would you take a step toward me? You don't have to clean it all up. You're like, dude, I'm too deep, bro. It's too deep. It's too hard. Would you turn from it? To repent means to turn around and turn toward God today and say, I recognize I don't have power in and of myself, but I recognize that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can have power to turn around and walk toward God. I do not have to live in sin. Or if you're trapped in shame today and that shame keeps pushing you further and further and probably pushing you away from God, away from people, maybe even into more sin, same thing, to turn around you know, when you repent of sin, it's like I'm repenting of doing something wrong. When you repent of shame, it's like you're, you're repenting from an identity that has been put on you. I'm saying, I'm not going to, I'm not, that's not who I am. I want to turn to God and allow him to speak over me who he is. If you are either one of those people today, the step is the same. It's toward God. It's away from the destruction. Sin destroys, shame destroys. And it's toward God. If that's you today, I just want to ask that you raise your hand real high right now and I want to pray for you. Yep. See you guys. Keep your hand up real high. Raise it up high like, God, I need you. Raising up your hand right now says, Lord, I need you. I don't want to be a, a slave to my sin. I don't want it to destroy my life. I don't want to be a slave to the shame. See you guys. Raise your hand up high. Man, I want to speak to you and say that you do not have to be a slave to that anymore. You don't have to. It's going to be hard, but the power of the Spirit rose Jesus from the dead. He can rise you up out of that. Raise your hand up high. You say, today, I want to follow Jesus. There's people everywhere. I see you. Raise your hand up high. I want to pray for you. With your hand lifted high, just say something like this to him. God, I don't want to live in that anymore. I want to follow you. I give my life to you right now, again, maybe. Right now, I want to follow you. I don't want to be trapped in that. I don't want to be trapped under that. Set me free, God. By the power of your spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, set me free. And real quick, before we sing this song, I want to give somebody an opportunity. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, to put your trust in him today, he will forgive you of your sin, write your name down in his book of life and give you eternal life. Today, you can have a brand new start. There's someone today, you're saying, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And you've never put your faith in him or have maybe walked away from him, raise your hand up. If you didn't already raise it, raise your hand up. I just wanna pray for you real quick. I see you, little buddy. Yeah, I see you. I see you guys, that's right. Yes, I see you back there. Yes, I see you, yes. 
God sees you. Raise your hand up high. Say, that's me, Lord. You now just say something like this to, to God. Say, Lord, I recognize that I've sinned. I've messed up. Please forgive me. Please fill me with your spirit. Please write my name in your book. I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to follow you. I want to follow you with my life. From this day forward, I'm choosing to follow you. Now we're going to sing, guys. Now we're going to sing. If you just raised your hand, you especially need to sing this truth and remind our souls who we are. Let's worship him now. Let's allow our hearts to come in alignment with who God says we are and what he's done.